we must act we must bring about a revolution in ourselves how can this revolution take place because we cannot possibly go on as we are going because our life is very superficial the life that one leads has no meaning spending years in the office living a shallow empty life living a second hand existence and everlastingly fighting both inwardly and outwardly welcome to soul search on rn i'm meredith lake and that was jiddu krishnamurti one of the most galvanizing spiritual figures of the 20th century he was born in india in 1895 and raised as the darling of a utopian movement, its adherents called Theosophy. By the 1920s, when Krishnamurti was in his 30s, it had spread around the globe, and he was being hailed as the coming world teacher in the footsteps of Krishna and of Christ. Thousands of people attached their hopes to him, including here in Australia. At Balmoral Beach in Sydney, Local theosophists spent a fortune building an open-air amphitheatre to welcome him, expecting Krishnamurti to appear through the harbour heads with a universal wisdom, India's handsome new messiah. The ABC's Caroline Jones went to the spot in 1970 and filed this report. In 1925, if a man had come in through Sydney heads, walking on the water, walked right across this stretch of water here and onto this little beach and then perhaps paused and addressed the multitude gathered to meet him and maybe performed a miracle or two, one group of Sydney people wouldn't have been at all surprised. This group of people was waiting for a second coming and they'd prepared for it very thoroughly by building here at Balmoral Beach a grand pavilion which they called the Star Amphitheatre. It used to stand where that block of red brick home units is now. It was white marble built in the style of ancient Greece at a cost of £10,000, completed in 1924. Those expecting the Second Coming were members of the local Theosophical Society and of the Order of the Star of the East. And their theory was given added impetus at the time by the teachings of a young Indian called Krishnamurti. Is this how you imagine the 1920s in Australia? Today on Soul Search, we'll explore Theosophy, the movement which nurtured radical expectation, anticipated the new age, and for some, reshaped the possibilities of the spiritual life. We'll come back to Krishnamurti a bit later on. There's a big twist in that part of the story. Right now, though, let's hear from Professor Wayne Hudson who's connected with both Charles Sturt University and the ANU. Professor Hudson is an intellectual historian and an expert on religious thought. So I asked him, what is theosophy? I think it's a word with multiple meanings in multiple time frames in different parts of the world. And one of the troubles is that it's used in English in a rather erratic way to refer to you know, the people who set up the Theosophical Movement in America, which then spreads to Australia. But there are many other, that, that term had been used for the previous 2,000 years and had all kinds of different meanings. 
Because, of course, the theosophists call themselves theosophists, even though what they're talking about is a strange Orientalist import into European culture, whereas lots and lots of other people had ideas that could be described as theosophical. So you've asked a simple question with a nightmare answer. (laughs) Well, I'm really interested in that nightmare. Can you take me back through those 2,000 years very briefly? I mean, it's a Greek word, isn't it, theosophia? Let me me fire the, the shot a different way that might make it even clearer. The essential idea to have is that Many human beings have thought that we could have natural knowledge of spiritual things, and they've also thought that spiritual things belong to the universe and were therefore law-like. Now, that idea is is to be found all over the world, really, among peoples everywhere. And it gets replaced, in a way, in the West by other rather rather peculiar ideas, which we then come to think of as the normal, you know, the obvious, the sensible ideas. But this other view that we have natural knowledge of spiritual things uh, is a fairly universal idea. It's obviously present in all forms of shamanism. It's very strong, obviously, in Australian Aboriginal culture and so on and so on and so on. And, of course, it's right across Asia. So when people start to call themselves theosophists in America, you've got a tremendous confusion emerging because it's, they use it to refer to them. And they also used it, of course, to refer to the idea that there was a universal ancient religion, which they're reviving and which will replace all the so-called world religions. So it's a term taken up by people with very specific ideas to refer to themselves and also to a political program that they have to kind of fix up the problem of the, of the so-called world religions. Leading the charge was a remarkable and controversial woman, Madame Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. Born in what is now the Ukraine, she was the instigator and leading theorist of the modern theosophical movement. Claiming special insight into an ancient wisdom tradition, Blavatsky wrote several books and helped to found the Theosophical Society in New York in 1875. The language of the occult, of the esoteric, of the hidden, runs right through her written work. And I wonder what the relationship of at least 19th century theosophy is to that tradition of the esoteric. Well, I think you've asked the right question, because the point is that it's very odd to think that all meaning can be made public and clear and plain. I mean, no poet and no musician thinks that. Probably in the end, no scientist thinks that. So... It's not very odd to say that some meaning can't be made entirely plain or exoteric. And so there's a sense in which very thoughtful and very clever people are often very esoteric, uh, regardless of their views on religious questions or cosmological questions, because uh, as every physicist knows, you can't explain the the heights of knowledge to to someone who hasn't begun to study the area. And so, in a way, the esoteric thing is all over the place, and it's very central in the Christian story. And that's one of the problems for modern Christianity, that modern Christianity doesn't really understand that. They don't realize how consciously esoteric so much of the Christian tradition was. And they identify this word esoteric with occult, and they think of theosophists as, you know, rather crazy people who have occult ideas. And that's not unfair, but it doesn't give you a sense of the importance of the esoteric development in world cultural history. 
the relationship of Western mysticism to the esoteric is part of the big, long cultural and intellectual background to the rise of contemporary theosophy. But I wonder if you could tell me while we're probing this kind of very curious moment in the late 19th century, a little bit more about Helena Blavatsky, because for her, that idea of altruistic occultists unveiling this archaic knowledge that had been lost in in a Christian West that had lost all sense of the esoteric was really crucial to what she was attempting. Well, I think she's a very difficult person to write about. She writes these books very fast. They're very hard to read or understand. They don't come out of normal consciousness. She writes the letters from the occult masters to herself. Uh, She makes all kinds of amazing claims about secret knowledge she acquired in the Middle East and various other... You know, she has stories about getting knowledge from masters in very remote parts of the world in terms of her her immediate context. So the problem at the beginning is we have someone of very uncertain testimony talking about all this. And then we have people attracted to her who are very, in some cases, like Yeats, enormously cultured and, and brilliant, brilliant people, but not learned in the things that would be relevant to understanding these claims. And so she if, did attract some fascinating followers. I mean, the Irish poet, as you've mentioned, but I, even yes. her her main offsider through this whole early period was Olcott, yes. Henry yes. Olcott. He was a US lawyer. He was part yes. of the team that he investigated President Lincoln's assassination. So kind of at the centre of respectable yes, well, you've, society. Again, you've, absolutely so. And I think the point to get, uh, what I would claim, I mean, different people have different views, and several of the main scholars in the world on this have views that are not mine, because the tendency has been for people trying to look at uh, 19th century theosophy to be textualist. The tendency has been that these are people who study books and other books and then other texts. But I don't think that's okay at all for the study of esoteric matters. I think it's fundamentally misleading because what's important, I think, is whether certain practices produce experiences of a strange kind. Uh, I think the way to understand this stuff generally is to ask a quite different question. Is the brain plastic and how can it be modified by practice? The Theosophical Movement spread to Australia in the 1880s. The late Jill Rowe researched its progress here, and her landmark History of Theosophy in Australia has just been republished as Searching for the Spirit. Back in the year 2000, Professor Rowe spoke with RN's Rachel Conn about the initial response to Theosophy in Australia. Both uh, Queensland and Tasmania, very early responses to the teachings of Blavatsky. And uh, it's not Sydney and Melbourne that they're a starting place. It is, in fact, Toowoomba and the Darling Downs, and also very early in Hobart. Now, why is this? It's a fascinating thing, isn't it? But one thing you have to say is that the colonial cultures were livelier than people think. And uh, the other is that there was something in that teaching which gained a response at the margins of the then world, perhaps in terms of race and culture. And also in that period you see a great interest in science and it seems that theosophy really fastened on to this in a perhaps a more 
fantasy-oriented way, such as um, Helena Blavatsky's belief in the lost continent of Lemuria and her notion of the evolution of races. It is post-Darwinian. The Darwinian revolution really had this enormous effect, didn't it, on religious uh, thinking. And although you say fantasy, I might just enter in there that there is such a thing as Gondwanaland and that a lot of things were not known or known as we think of them. So the notion of lost continents has now become rather uh, way out and wacky. But in the late 19th century, when not too much was known about the migration of early peoples and the, the geological shifts that have occurred, especially in this area, there was a certain credibility in these hypotheses. And they fitted rather well the notion that things had been lost fitted rather well into what were presented as critiques of the crude materialisms of Darwinism. The movement is post-Darwinian, but at one level, Helena Blavatsky was not convinced by Darwin's notion of evolution. She had a sort of other notion. Oh, yes. It was post-Darwinian only in a chronological sense. It was, in fact, uh, anti-Darwinian although, like a lot of late Victorian religious thought, it attempted to seize the evolutionary hypothesis and spiritualise it so that the evolution of the soul and the spirit still retained their uh, preeminence and supremacy in uh, human endeavour. For these people, although it may have been true that... uh, you know, the old God was dead and the old authority and creeds were indeed in ruins. Nonetheless, something had been lost. Uh, The secret doctrine, actually, was how Blavatsky, in her amazing way, thought of it. And it was this that was going to reconstitute, on a scientific basis, the evolution of the soul of man, which was not subordinate to a materialistic notion of evolution. After Helena Blavatsky's death in 1891, Britain's Annie Besant emerged as the movement's next magnetic leader. A prominent socialist and social reformer, Besant was international president of the Theosophical Society for 26 years. Annie Besant is another wondrous uh, figure. And at the time she met Elena uh, Blavatsky in London, She was very prominent in uh, the socialist revival and in the ferment of the 1880s. But we know from private documentation that she was also very interested and perturbed by mental science and uh, was uh, caught up in uh, the spiritualists and occult revivals that were occurring at that time. And before we say that Uh, this too is rather wacky. You have to see it in its historical context. We're not yet anywhere near the Freudian revolution. We're not yet uh, out of 19th century notions of uh, mental science. We're somewhere in between where it's all wide open. I like to say that at this time in history the late 19th century, for 
intellectuals and thinking people, religion uh, formed the same focus of all their concerns and anxieties as sex seems to do today. (laughs) Well, when Annie Besant came to Australia a couple of times, she certainly impressed the media. But when she was here the second time and decided to speak on theosophy and Christianity, her welcome was less warm. Indeed. That was 1908. It was still true that uh, that great religious intellectual Alfred Deacon was there to hear, as had very many other distinguished Australians in 1894. But Annie brought a new slant and was looking for some kind of rapprochement. She did also uh, strengthen the Indian dimension of the Theosophical Society, but... When she was here, uh, the question of religion in schools, the role of religion in the new Commonwealth, they were still tendentious issues, church and state. Well, certainly Christians would not have been very comfortable with someone espousing, say, a belief in karma. Dear me, no. Actually, a war of pamphlets ensued. Uh, when she was here, after she was here in 1908. And there's plenty of critiques, especially by uh, Anglican and uh, the Catholic clergy. Well, one of the claims that Theosophy made was that it wasn't a religion, but it was there to aid religion, to help religion. Now, that would have been quite difficult to live out, because eventually it it even attempted to establish its own church. Indeed. It was based on an historical perspective which noticed the decline, so-called decline, of Christian behaviour and practice. That is a sort of persistent thing, the notion that Christianity is uh, in decline and it comes and goes with intensity. In the 1960s it was uh, intense, And it was intense again in the late 19th century in the wake of the Darwinian Revolution. And so coming to the aid of religion, now how are they going to do that? I think of uh, early theosophy as seeking authority, intellectual authority, but that that authority wasn't going to come from the old sources of uh, revealed religion. It had to be reconstructed. You've listened here for an hour. Have you listened to the speaker or have you listened to yourself, what is, what is going on in yourself? Which is it? Have you listened to the speaker or have you listened to your own mutterings? Am I, imp- as the speaker imposing, these things, or are you, <coughs> are you watching your own activity? Now, if you are watching your own activity, when you go outside, you will still be watching it. You will be still learning about it. But if you say, well, I have only been forced to listen to that speaker for an hour, then it is not yours. Then you are caught in the trap. I don't know if you follow them. If it is yours, not another's, then you can't lose it. 
then you become a light to yourself and not the light of somebody else. Krishnamurti, the great hope of many theosophists. And before that, the great historian of theosophy in Australia, the late Jill Rowe. That conversation with Rachel Conn was recorded way back in the year 2000. On RN, I'm Meredith Lake, and on Soul Search today, we're exploring this radical spiritual movement and probing its appeal. What made theosophy so compelling to an influential minority of Australian society? Here's Charles Sturt University's Professor Wayne Hudson. One of the troubles in the study of all religion, including theosophy, is a tendency to pay attention to strange beliefs and not to what people actually achieve. The theosophists uh, achieve a great deal. I mean, their influence on Australian music is considerable, on art, very considerable. They are promoting all kinds of reform. They're involved in education. They're arguing against cruelty to animals. They're fighting against racism, even though they have a strangely racial aspect to their own cosmology. But they are arguing for a universal brotherhood of all peoples and all races and all castes and all creeds. There's an enormous utopian impulse in the theosophical movement. Well, let's talk about the decade of the 1920s, because that's when some of this utopianism was yes, merged yes. with a kind of millenarianism Millenarian, yes. and an adventism, this sense that yes. a new world was coming, that a new wisdom yes. for all humanity was about to be disclosed. And it wasn't yes. new in the sense of novel, but in its own language, it was an ancient wisdom, an archaic knowledge returning. that was, was returning in a way that yes. spoke to the challenges yes. of a world that was still suffering from the effects, firstly, of the World yes. War and of the the Spanish flu, and yet there's this sense of expectation. Yes, two points about that. The first point is that historians, including Jill Rowe in her fantastic and wonderful book, uh, takes the sort of social historian's view of all this, and she explains why people get into theosophy in terms of uh, their relationship to the churches, social developments, anxieties of the period, and so on and so on and so on. It's a perfectly legitimate approach, and she does it brilliantly. But it's not the only approach, and I would be more sympathetic in some ways to trying to argue that naturalism will return. I think they're significantly right about a number of questions Such because as? they're returning to a naturalist model when it's been forgotten in the West. To take up your millenarian point, in a way they were right. They were, in fact, the harbingers of a worldwide change in consciousness. Now, it didn't happen then. It happens in, later in the New Age in a more pop form and reaches more people. But they are right. I mean, who do you know in Sydney or Melbourne now who thinks we should discriminate by race or caste or religion or sex? Hardly anybody. But this is not true when they're operating in Melbourne and Sydney in the 1920s. So they are a prophetic utopian minority who, in a sense, have seen more advanced ethical positions than are general in their culture. And they get away from the idea that you have to have correct beliefs. Theosophists are allowed to have virtually any beliefs. It's not a religion in the sense of a set of beliefs or propositions imposed upon you. And the people who join don't want beliefs imposed upon them. And that, again, is very prophetic.
As it turned out, Krishnamurti didn't want certain beliefs imposed upon him either. In 1929, having been hailed as the coming world teacher, he rejected the role and renounced the messianic expectations that had surrounded him. Krishnamurti dissolved the Order of the Star and resigned from the Theosophical Society. People who had committed themselves to that um, great dream, the letdown was really uh, something. Then, of course, there were people who tried to come to terms with it, and I would say on the whole that that is what theosophists did. Krishnamurti rejected his role in a way that could be regarded as theosophical. He'd said that he was not going to lead anyone. Theosophy uh, claimed to be a path. It didn't necessarily postulate structures and leaders and uh, so forth. You see, religions with their dogmas Rituals, beliefs, saviors have divided people. There is the Hindu religion, the Buddhist religion, the Christian, and the division among the Christians. They have actually divided people. They have not brought together people. So this division has caused great deal of mischief, great deal of harm, great deal of sorrow. And so to start another propagandistic, uh, if I may call it a circus, it is a circus, all these religious things are. It would be so utterly stupid. Krishnamurti's renunciation of organised theosophy was devastating for thousands. But it was the end of a chapter, not of the whole story. The influence of modern theosophy ran in many different directions as the late Jill Rowe explained to RN's Rachel Conn some years ago, and as I learned from Professor Wayne Hudson. You have to keep reminding people that theosophy was enormously important in India. It, it had a major impact on Indian political development and enabled many Asians to become culturally assertive in a way that was harder for them to do before. They had a major impact on the revival of Buddhism in Sri Lanka. So there's an Asian dimension of this, and that's not stressed enough in the literature. Oh, the, the Theosophical Movement is the uh, starting point of the whole New Age uh, impulse as we know it. With regard to influence, it's always very hard, isn't it, to quite pin it down, but you can certainly locate uh, significant Australians who were influenced or indeed participants in the movement. Yes, who are some of them? Alfred Deakin, the Prime Minister? Alfred Deakin took notice of everything happening in the religious world and uh, he was for a year a member of the society. Uh, the great uh, feminist Vita Goldstein, who later became a Christian scientist, she took an interest. People uh, just uh, wanted to know what this new idea was. I'm thinking also of the Bean family, 
Edwin Bean and C.W. Bean are very well known, especially C.W. as the really the originator of the Anzac legend. Their his brother Jack Bean was a stalwart of the Theosophical Society. It's everywhere in the in the intelligentsia. I think you would find these influences in the world of architecture. The best known one are probably uh, Walter Burley and Marion Marnie Griffin who actually finished up as anthroposophists, yet were in an intellectual milieu where theosophy was an influence and they published in theosophical journals in Australia. Well, there's so much more we could talk about here but I'm wondering what the implications might be for how we think about religion and spirituality in the Australian experience. In your own work, Professor Hudson, you've suggested that we need much more nuanced terms than a monolithic secular or religious. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And you talk particularly about an intriguing concept of sacral secularity, And I want to ask you whether theosophy could be considered as a movement in the vanguard of that sacral secularity. But perhaps first you could explain what you mean by that term. It has to do with the the way in which the history of Australia was written until very recently, without much reference to the rest of the world other than England. And that's extremely misleading for obvious reasons. And the older literature didn't recognise sufficiently the originality and the creativity of Australians. It paid much too much attention to the relation to England, which was obviously important, and it neglected a variety of other influences of which there were very, very many. And related to all that, the historians tended to suggest that this was the most secular society in the world. Well, that's not right. That is radically wrong. There was an enormous amount of religious thought in Australia. It's extremely important until at least 1960. It has formative effects in politics and law. Uh, And Australians who were important were in many, many cases quite heavily involved in various forms of religious thought or mysticism. Uh, This was much more common than historians realise. And the general tendency is to see a sacral dimension in what we might call ordinary life and temporal affairs. And that runs across ideological barriers. That's to be found in atheists and agnostics. So one of the things I'm saying about Australia, but also quite generally, is that our understanding of spiritual things has been radically affected in a bad way by the idea that what matters are your particular beliefs. This is an idea that that it becomes strong in the Middle Ages, picked up in Protestantism, and then becomes quite general among some Christian groups. But it's fundamentally disastrous because you then ask, do you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? And according to your answer to that, you think you know something. But when you look at people all over the world, but in Australia also, you find that these distinctions don't work, that all kinds of Australians who could not be described as churchy or religious in a, in a pop sense are, in in another way, really very religious spiritual people indeed. And so I tried to revise the Australian historical record by showing that you can't use the dualism between belief and unbelief and disbelief. These things don't work well in Australia. These things flow across the boundaries. And asking about people's belief in particular propositions is also not very useful. 
because uh, you've got to see more deeply. And when you look more deeply, you find spiritual forces in almost all human beings. I mean, Bertrand Russell would be a wonderful example. He He's an atheist, he attacks Christianity, and he writes one of the great mystical books of the 20th century. So I think it's very important in Australia to begin to rethink the degree to which the country was elite, was secular, and also to see that there's a sacrality in our temporal arrangement. In light of that, Professor Hudson, I wonder... What would you make of the role of the esoteric in Australian life and culture now, especially given that some of its main advocates in the period we've been talking about, such as the Theosophical Society, hasn't persisted as a major organisation? What we need to understand is that many things that they brought forward are now absolutely normal for the Australian schoolchild. So they have a role in promoting the idea of bushwalking in Australia for example. Now, the people who bushwork may not be theosophists, but out of the esoteric strand, that in part comes. The whole attention to the environment is very much a theosophical theme. And I think it's fair to say that the whole uh, attempt to understand Asian religion, which is very general now, I mean, almost all Australians understand that Buddhism is to be taken very seriously. Well, uh, theosophists, promoted that idea to some degree when other people didn't and so on and so on and so on. So although they aren't important in the literal sense now, many of their causes have become more general. And I would also suggest that the problem they raise about whether or not spiritual matters can be understood in a naturalistic way is at the centre of the present crisis of Christianity. I mean, Christianity is in trouble in Europe and that trouble will spread to other parts of the world because it is not at the moment generating rational and coherent answers to what it's about. Now, I think that's because it does not explain in a coherent way uh, what the relationship is between spiritual things and naturalism. Now, the theosophists may have been wrong about that, but they certainly pose that question clearly. Professor Wayne Hudson is an intellectual historian at Charles Sturt University and the ANU. His many books include the landmark Australian Religious Thought. You also heard some extracts from an interview by RN's Rachel Conn with the late Professor Jill Rowe. Jill died in 2017, but her classic history of theosophy in Australia has just been republished. It's called Searching for the Spirit, and you'll find a link to more information on the Soul Search webpage. Via podcast and on air with Radio National, you're with me, Meredith Lake. And it's time now to drag ourselves out of the history books and back to the present to find out about theosophy in Australia today. The society still exists, and I spoke to one of its most active members. My name is Pedro Oliveira. I was born in Brazil and I have been living in Australia for the past 20 years. I work as the education coordinator of the TS in Australia. I am a member of the society because I have found in it an environment in which I can proceed with this search for truth, if you like, or the meaning of existence in an environment which is safe 
which guarantees freedom of thought and in which there is a camaraderie and a common aspiration to serve humanity. Welcome to Soul Search. Why don't we begin with a quick snapshot of theosophy in Australia today? How big is the theosophical community at the moment? We have centres of the TS in Australia, in Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, Hobart, Launceston, and um, Newcastle. So we have uh, approximately 11 uh, centres, but we also have study groups in different places like Wodonga, Albury, in the Mornington Peninsula. So we are scattered around the country. We have nowadays, I would say, approximately 780 members. Wow. Yes. Our membership has declined over the years. When I came to Australia at the end of the 90s, you know, I arrived here to find out that the TS in Australia had around 1,400 members. Right. And at times in the past, Theosophy has been stronger in Australia than virtually anywhere else in the world. How does the Australian theosophical community compare globally at the moment? Well, uh, you see, in spite of the diminishing numbers, it's still a strong society here. We have a strong headquarters located in Surrey Hills. We have a very unique collection of periodicals. For example, we have the entire collection of the magazine that Madame Blavatsky started in Bombay in 1879. Uh, wow. in our collection. It's called The Theosophist. What an incredible and, archive. You mentioned study groups before and you're talking now about scholarship. Is that the main activity of the theosophical community now or what kinds of things do you do when you meet together? The society has had from the beginning a very important principle that although it does have an international body with its officers, a national body with an elected president. We also elect directly our international president. Um, there is a great deal of autonomy uh, in these centers. So their committee or their program subcommittee decides what they are going to offer to the community. And of course, if you go to the website and to the programs of every center, you will see talks on different aspects of theosophy, sometimes also talks on astrology and so on. But we try to keep our platform, let us say, focus on theosophy because that's why the society was founded. It was not founded to be an umbrella group for all sorts of spiritual groups. Do you understand that? I wanted to ask you about the society because I think it's fair to say that it's been through a lot, splits, controversies, changing fortunes, and its peak in the 1920s is nearly 100 years ago now, yeah. except that it, it has survived internationally as well as here in Australia. Yeah. Why do you think it's persisted so long? What is its present appeal? Uh, I think the society survived because of what it offers to people. Which is? Which is to search for the meaning of existence, to search for truth, if you like, or to to, to search comparative religion, meditation, the deeper meaning of life, to do that in an environment 
in which nobody is telling you what to study and what to believe. So the, the principle of freedom of thought, and, and the society qualifies that principle by saying that people are entitled to their views. Nobody in this society can be discriminated because of their opinions, but the society only asks its members to express their opinions within the limits of courtesy and consideration for others. I wonder about your own learning or your own seeking and the form that that takes at this point in your life, but also over the years. What does it look like for you to seek truth? Is this a matter of study or of communication Mm. with a master or of spiritual practice? You mentioned meditation before. Yes. How would you describe your own search? I have learned something in India that I have kept very close to my heart and and it has helped me in good stead so far. And that is that a question was asked in one of the ancient Upanishads. How can the self be known? In Sanskrit, the word self with a capital S is a translation of Atman. That means that consciousness that is unconditioned and it has not been distorted by the process of experience. What St. Paul would say, the incorruptible in us. But in the Indian tradition, Atman is this consciousness. It is very clear, undistorted perception of the unity of all life. And the answer to that question, how is this self known, is through listening, reflecting, and meditating. And I try to apply this in my life. What do you mean by listening? In uh, a sense, I mean, the Theosophical Society, its goals that have been consistent for more than 100 years now include the investigation of unexplained laws of nature, investigation of the powers latent in man. Yes. How does that relate to what you're talking about? There are three objects in the TS. The first object talks about universal brotherhood or sisterhood without distinction. And the second is the study of comparative religion, philosophy, and science, indicating that no tradition, no ideology has the monopoly of truth. But the third object is deeper than the the second one, I would say, because it means to, in order to conduct that investigation, you have to prepare yourself. And in order to prepare yourself, you have to refine your perception. You have to teach your perception to quieten down so that you can actually see what is happening. And listening is the beginning. It is an exercise in being at home with what is before you without judging it, without editing it, without interpreting it. So how has this investigation of the unexplained, of the latent, unfolded? Is it through the development of a practice of meditation? Do you see yourself, for example, as someone with psychic gifts? Well, uh, no. I I still consider myself a a beginner in all this and uh, because there is so much to learn. For example, Radha Burnier, who was our 
uh, international president for a number of years, she made the comment regarding the third object by saying that the powers mentioned in the third object mean the powers to understand what we see. We see beauty and we don't understand. We see suffering and we don't understand. We see turmoil or enthusiasm or confusion and we don't understand. So for the mind to understand life and reality, it needs to have what Krishnamurti call order. And that's why in theosophy, there is this emphasis of meditation and study and service because each one of these activities develops a different area of our being. Meditation develops the intuitive capacity to learn in a non-mediated way. Study develops the broadness of the mind and the depth of the mind. And service develops what has been called right action, you know, and uh, Real service is not do something and waiting for the pat on the back. Real service means to be joyous in sharing with people and helping people without necessarily seeking anything in return. When Madame Blavatsky began the modern theosophical movement, she used the language of recovering an ancient wisdom tradition and you could say that theosophy now has its own tradition in the world. Yes. And I wonder how you would describe your relationship to that tradition, that inheritance. Well, I have studied uh, most of her books, basically all of them, some of them several times. She said every attempt similar to the CS has ended up in failure because sooner or later it has developed a stereotyped creed and and therefore that vitality of the search for truth died in them and the whole thing died out and she said the society is not free from this danger it's up to the members to do something about it you could say that judu krishnamurti's renunciation of that moniker of world teacher in 1929 came at one of those critical points when the pull towards becoming an organisation that had something like a creed or a common set of expectations was starting to crystallise and yet he pulled back from all that in a theosophical way. Was that the turning point, to maintain a sense of uh, being a fellowship of seekers rather than a community of believers? I must say this. We still have members of the society who have not forgiven Krishnamurti. Really? Particular, particularly in Australia and New Zealand and other places. They say, well, he was destined to a certain role and he just walked out. Now, this is their view. And as I said, the society tolerates different views and not only tolerates, it welcomes different views. But we have others, and I join the others in this view. Let's say he saved the society. He shook it up. And he div he returned the society to its basic job of, you know, uh, studying theosophy and sharing the ancient wisdom. Because, you see, at that time, there was no body of teachings that the so-called world teacher uh, was 
pronouncing that the members had to accept. What there was, it was a, a very aggravated expectation that he was the world teacher. But any peasant who basically announced him to the world, and I'm concluding a book on that, it's called Any Besant in India, it should be published this year. She said, I have never said he was the world teacher. I said he's, he was going to be the vehicle for a new teaching. And towards the end of his life, four days before he, he died, he wanted to record a message in which he said, for 70 years, this super intelligence has worked through this body, but now the body can't stand it anymore. So he basically vindicated Besant at the very end of his life. But the important point is that he was adamant that people should seek truth independently. Pedro, in one of your own essays that I read on the Theosophical Society website, you write something I found quite extraordinary. You said, Theosophy is not only an inspiring teaching or another philosophical tradition, it is indeed the hope of the world, the true light which gives truth and nothing but the truth. Can you explain what you mean and particularly what kind of hope do you think Theosophy yes. offers the world now? Yes, I have to go back to the beginnings of the Christian era. Oregon, in one of his uh, books, wrote that the scriptures have, he was using a metaphorical language, the scriptures have a body, a soul, and a spirit. The body is the literal meaning, the soul is the metaphoric or allegorical meaning, and the spirit can only be understood by those who have the mind of Christ. This is what he wrote. And I wrote an article many years ago saying that, you know, using that metaphor, saying that theosophy has different levels to it. That is the literal meaning. And I have been in, in discussions where people are trying to concretize the literal meaning to an almost absolute level. And we, we walk out of the meeting still as friends, but there were some very fierce exchanges there. Mm. But yes, there is a literal meaning. That means what is in the books. There is an allegorical meaning or a, a metaphorical meaning. And there are a number of metaphors in theosophy. For example, one of the Madame Blavatsky's last book is called The Voice of the Silence. That's a paradox, isn't it? Yes. And, uh, and then she said, she explained that, that the greatest paradox in the spiritual life is to be aware of oneself and yet at the same time to be free from oneself to be free from the conditioning, the accumulated burden of experiences and rancor, resentment, and so on. So, And then the uh, spiritual meaning? And that's it. So there is the literal meaning, the metaphorical meaning, and the spiritual dimension of theosophy, as I see it, is freedom. From it, or for? It, it, is, it is the whole scope of freedom of human consciousness. That if you really understand that your views, your opinions, or, or things that you really treasure, they are just opinions, then you can move on 
into this dimension in, in which one leaves opinions behind and experiences life as it is. Krishnamurti used to say, the word is not the thing. And Immanuel Kant, I think, comes to my help here when he said, we can only think through categories, right? Extension, time, space, and so on. But the thing in itself cannot be thought. So I would say that the spirit of theosophy takes us beyond language, beyond description, to an experience of the sacredness of whole life. Pedro Oliveira, who first joined the Theosophical Society in Brazil more than 40 years ago. He's currently the Education Officer for the Society here in Australia. And that brings us to the end of our venture into the world of modern theosophy. It's a small but influential movement that's anticipated so much of the post-Christian spirituality of today. We've barely scratched the surface, so if you'd like to follow up on anything you've heard, just head to the Soul Search website for a host of further links and more information, including some archive programs on Jiddu Krishnamurti. Thanks to producer Mariam Shahab, and it's been great to have your company today. Next time on the show, we'll be talking reconciliation with a leading Indigenous theologian, Dr. Anne Patel-Gray. I'm Meredith Lake, and I hope you can join me then for Soul Search on RN. <laughs> <laughs>